Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. everyone and welcome to the history of england your free shedcast on place names right then gentle listeners let me try something on you i am aware that on my podcast like many others advertising is all over the place on behalf of podcasters everywhere i am sorry but it does put food on the table more important actually are the membership offers that many have which is far and away the most important for those of us that live and die by the cast as in You've had two million words of the history of England, but surely you need more by being a member. So look, given the amount of advertising around, I hit on this idea. In return for advertising my membership, why don't I give something back to you for your kindness in putting up with all this extraneous blather? Although I guess that's a pretty good description of my podcasts themselves, to be fair. So, this episode is in effect what I think the marketing folk call an advertorial. I'm going to tell you why I think you would enjoy becoming a member of the History of England. In return, I'm going to give you a freebie episode in the form of some members' content, or shedcasts, as I call them, most amusingly, I thought. (laughs) So, now I'm going to tell you briefly about membership, and then you can listen to a whole shedcast about English place names. Deal? Quickly then. Membership of the History of England gives you access to a library of over 100 hours of additional content from me and to new shedcasts from me every month, usually 60 to 100 minutes worth a month. But not just that. Once a member, you can listen to all the free History of England podcasts without adverts this time through your normal podcatcher using a special URL and you can get ad-free access to the History of England through the special members app. And the app also breaks up and orders those 100 hours of shedcasts so you can easily see what you've got and pick the series that you want to listen to. There are various types of content for members. There are topics like place names or wills or early diplomacy or the rise of religious toleration in Europe or short biographies of people like Thomas More. There are series Life and Landscape in Anglo-Saxon England or the development of the British Constitution and Common Law, just for examples. And then there are extended biographies split into manageable episodes, but totalling, say, six or seven hours across all the episodes. At the moment, we have William Marshall, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Margaret Beaufort, John Hawkwood. There's loads more content, but enough already. You can see what's available and the chicken feed I charge for it at thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Once you're there, look for Become a Member. And you can sign up and pay there an annual or a monthly fee, 
or there's a button to take you to Patreon if you would prefer to support me that way. So, thehistoryofengland.co.uk, be there or be square. Right, that's it for the adverb bit. Now on to the tutorial and a short history of English place names. The following represents about half of the three place name shedcasts that you get as a member. Now my personal view is that place name analysis is a fascinating subject that will enrich your lives by giving unique and direct access to the way the world used to be and what was important once to our ancestors. So as you walk through the largely man-made English countryside, in my case desperately trying to find out what on earth has happened to the bloody dog, clues to the past, private, intimate and local history of each patch of ground is etched silently into the landscape. There's an old boundary. There's a row of beech, once coppiced to provide material for hurdles, now overgrown. Maybe there's a stretch of metalled trackway or a tollgate marker. And I love place names for the same reason as landscape archaeology, because they help you reach back into the living past, offer up a glimpse as to the characteristics of a place maybe hundreds of years ago, or something that happened there, or the people that owned it, or what it looked like once upon a time. So the first bit you're going to know already, because you've been suckled on the milk of the history of England, this is that England's place names are, of course, deeply affected by the languages and cultures that have inhabited the landscape. The first, mysterious inhabitants, Beaker people I think they're sometimes called, before the Britons then arrived with their Celtic, the Romans, then Angles, Saxons, Jutes and Old English, and then the Danes. And then a variety of other more subtle invaders, Christianity, Normans who didn't contribute much to place names but just marked some of them as their own, a bit like a dog weeing somewhere to make sure you know who's boss. Sorry, slightly gross analogy, but that's the Normans for you. Industrialisation brought some names, new towns brought a few as well. And along the way, of course, we've messed place names up because we are an idle lot and shorten things or forget what words meant from previous peoples or generations. In terms of numbers, though, it's Old English that absolutely dominates place names. There are a tiny handful of pre-Celtic names, all rivers, I think. There are a small number of Celtic names, more in the west than in the east, since it took longer for the Anglo-Saxons to get there, particularly Devon and Cornwall. There are very few Roman names, since the Anglo-Saxons changed and adapted all those. And after Old English has come and gone, there are also very small numbers. I need to start by introducing a warning about place names, which is that things aren't always what they seem. So sometimes you look at names and they do mean exactly what they seem to be. So Nettlebed, for example, just down the road from me, means the place which had a patch of nettles in it. Ta-da! Oxford means a ford frequently used by oxen. So that's good then. But sadly, it's quite rarely the case because we mess about with stuff so. So there is a lovely place called Slaughter, just for example, in the Cotswold. Beautiful place. Possibly named after what the inhabitants would like to do to the hordes of tourists that tip up there every year. But actually, on further analysis, it turns out that Slaughter means the muddy place. Then there's a place called Wool in Dorset, which actually means place of the wells. Pratt's Bottom seems 
terribly straightforward, doesn't it? But actually, sadly, it's the place belonging to the Pratt family from the 14th century, which just happens to be at the bottom of a valley. Obviously, everyone prefers the modern interpretation, and why wouldn't you? What your place name experts do, I am told, is go back to the original sources, which give us the oldest possible names that we can work on. And we have a few sources, like Bede, for example, and of course, the ever-handy Doomsday Book. Just to give you an example of why it's important to follow Mary Poppins' advice and start at the very beginning, let us consider the name Chipping Sodbury. This name started off, in fact, as Schopenburg. So, when you get two consonants close to each other, which the lips and tongue produce in similar ways, one of them tends to be changed to make it all easier. Because, as I say, we're an idle lot. And we have better things to do in life than pronounce things properly. So, the double P in Schopenburg got changed to a D. Secondly, there's the Burig bit, which means a fortified place. It's an old English word. And... It has a guttural G in it. Mm, well, that's annoying, because when the Normans came over with all their Frenchified ways, they didn't like a guttural G, because they don't have it in Norman French. So Burig gets turned into suffixes like burry, burra, or bra. Back to shop and Burig then, and its transmorgification to Sodbury. Two further tendencies. Unpronounced middle syllables tend to get lost. And it's a rule of thumb that if a name can be shortened, it generally will be. As in my hideous tendency to shorten Victoria to Vic, which is not a good idea, I accept. So put all of those things together and Schopenburg becomes Sodbury. The chipping bit came later. There were a few Sodburys around, so one of them gets called chipping, based on the old English chiap for market, to denote that it was the particular Sodbury that also had a market. OK, so it's tricky is the thing. You need to know the life of a word to be sure what it originally meant. Although amateurish guessing is a time-honoured feature of English academic life, so essentially just go for it. So, first of all, I thought I'd concentrate on the fundamental words of street and road and other words that might take you somewhere. I might start by saying that while we have two words, street and road, which are far and away the most popular words for a roadway, if you like, there are a lot of other words too. I counted 45 in one survey, and even that was rubbish, because, unaccountably, they didn't include the East Midlands word ginnel to denote a small, narrow and possibly odiferous alleyway between houses. Or indeed include wind with a Y, which might generally be Scottish, I think, but you do get in Northern England to boot. As I say, the most popular, though, are street and road. Why do we have two, and what's the difference between them? Now, granted that with all the modern building going on, there is an increasing messing around of the difference between them, the first and most fundamental difference is, of course, that street is normally an urban word, and the road is more often than not in the country. Secondly, street is generally a place where people live and work, whereas road normally goes somewhere, which is why it so often has the destination in it, like London Road. A third distinction that I'd never thought about is that you say a street name differently to the way you say a road name. I have no idea if this holds true outside of England, so do let me know. So in a road name, 
Both parts of the name are equally stressed. So, Edgware Road, for example. Sometimes, locally, road names get a definite article applied to them. The Edgware Road. The Old Kent Road. While in street, the name itself is stressed. So, Oxford Street, for example. Watling Street. See? Emphasis on the name element. Oxford. Watling. Bookie. Why would that be, I wonder? Well, I am glad you asked me that. For a bit of preliminary background, street is one of the very few loan words from classical Latin that predate imports from medieval Latin. As we all know, the Romans built road. That was their idiom, if you like, as well as claiming to bring freedom while actually bringing a desert in Calgarchus's immortal phrase. Well, Tacitus's immortal phrase. And they call these military highways strata from Weir strata, a paved way. When the Angles, Saxons, Jutes and so on arrived, they weren't used to roads like the Romans built, all tidy and lacking the normal comfortable Anglo-Saxon mush, mud and dung. So they took the Roman word, since these were obviously something different to what they had back home, as well as enthusiastically using said roads themselves. And so we get the old English word strat, which turned to street and was used for any and all kinds of roadway. Now, the thing about streets is that you need a differentiator before them. You couldn't just say, let's meet on the street, because your pal would understandably say, well, what street? Could you be a bit more specific, please? So, of course, you'd give it a name. High Street or Pepper Street. So, understandably, it's the differentiating word that is important here to make sure your friend and you get together on the same place. So, the differentiating word is stressed. High Street. Pepper Street. The same phenomenon happens with rivers, for example, where there are lots and lots of rivers all over the place. So the differentiating bits get stressed. The River Trent or the River Saw. OK, with me so far? So we have Anglo-Saxons walking all over the place along streets. Now the word road, on the other hand, didn't appear as a word with the modern-day usage of a thing you travelled along until really quite late, until the 16th century. It does have to be said that there seems to be an isolated usage in that form around 1400, which annoys and worries people, but you and I can let the experts worry about that. Now, the word road has good, honest Anglo-Saxon origins. It comes from rad, the word for riding. So the original word road that first emerged in the 9th century, was not a word for the thing that you walked or rode on at all. It was, in fact, a word for a temporary activity, the activity of riding, a single journey. So as it transmogified to a word for the thing that you actually travelled on, the permanent thing, it kept the same stresses as it had had in its previous life as a verb, as a word denoting the action of riding, as an action it got the equal stress along with any adjective attached to it. Very much the same as saying a long journey or a tiring journey. This habit therefore fed through to the way we use road today. The Reading Road, Edgware Road. The same emphasis on each word. The same emphasis as saying the Reading Ride. Now, there are many other words for types of pathway and in the original Shedcast, should you choose to become a member, you can find out a bit more, such as Muse, Gate, and drift, and also why Roman roads acquired the names that they have today. 
When we're talking about the place names of settlements, generally speaking then, the structure of place names sits in three categories. Compound names, simplex names and double-barrelled names. The most common of these is a compound made of two parts, two components. The first component usually qualifies the second, not quite always. To illustrate what that means, let us take one of the most common Old English place name elements, tun, which means enclosure, farmstead, village, manor, estate, something like that, or ham, which means something very similar, and is believed to possibly be used a little earlier, historically speaking. So words with ham in them tend to denote earlier settlements than those with tun in them. Fab fact in a blizzard of fab facts. Words like tun and ham, which denote some kind of place, normally come second in the place name, and they are then qualified or described by the first element. The first element is a component usually drawn from an adjective. It might be a colour, or a size, or its position, or its ownership, or something like that. So, take glatten. Glatton means pleasant farmstead. Glat, pleasant, qualifying the second element, tun, farmstead. Or Kingston, the king's farm, or Horham, which means a muddy farmstead. The principle's a bit the same as when we talked about street. There are loads of streets, so you need to add something to differentiate each one. There are loads of farms, so you need to differentiate them one from another. Sometimes there are more than two elements in the compound, sometimes there's three. So Claverton means burdock, ford, farmstead. That is, the farmstead by the ford, which has burdock growing by it. I can see it in my mind's eye as I speak. I wonder if they made a refreshingly gross drink from burdock. Who knows? Although compound words are by far the most common, the second group of place names is what they call simplex place names, which are, as you'd expect, made of just one element. A few examples. Hale comes from an old English word denoting a nook in the corner of a river. Lee from the word for a clearing in a forest. Thorpe from the Scandinavian word for outlying village. And then the last form is the bubble darrelled formation. And this is when we come to the Normans, or indeed other later nobles arriving to take over some land or estates. So, after said Normans arrived and given the poor old Anglo-Saxons a good old beating, they went into a countryside that was pretty much named up. So they decided all they needed to do is add their mark of ownership to it. So, for example, Tybalt de Buzard arrived at a place called Leighton. You might think that with the component Lee, which normally means clearing, this might mean something like farm in the clearing, but in this case, Lee seems to come from the word for leak. So what we have is Leighton Leak Farm. Anyway, no doubt Tybald was happy with his new possession, but just to make sure everyone knew he'd arrived, the place became known henceforth as Leighton de Buzard, or, in modern usage, Leighton Buzzard. The same thing happened at a place called Shepton, or Sheep Farm, where the mallets turned up from Normandy, and called it Shepton Mallet. You can actually track some of these names back to the area of Normandy where the family originated. So, Marston Maisie derives from a place called Misi in Normandy. But sometimes, as always, there's a curveball or a googly, depending on whether you're a baseball or cricket fan. Charlton Mackerel, for example, 
There is no point looking for a place called Mackerel in Normandy. The word here is a nickname, meaning something like courtesan. Bubbledowled names are the main way in which the French impacted English place names. They do have some more other impacts, but it tends to be in either struggling with pronunciation of a new place they've arrived at, or imposing a completely new name on an existing place already named. The most common of these was pretty. Ooh, they said, as they rounded a corner into their new domains, crushing dying Anglo-Saxon peasants under their mailed boots as they walked. That's a pretty hill. And so the place is renamed Beaumont. There are other reasons for double-barrelled names, though, for more functional reasons. Position is the main one. So, East Grinstead, for example, as opposed to West Grinstead. Or size, maybe. So, High Barnet, to distinguish it from other less important Barnets. Or Market Harbour, the harbour that has a market. You get the idea. Whether compound, simplex or double-barrelled, there are some general themes for how the name is acquired and again, they can be divided broadly into three. The rule of three, wherever that comes from. Firstly, there are folk names. That is, names associated with people or tribes, like Hastings, the place belonging to Hasta. Secondly, habitative names. That is to say, names which describe the kind of place it is, like a farm or a fortress. And this is the largest of the types. So place names ending in ham or ton or Thorpe for barn, or Wick for a trading centre, just for example. And then thirdly, there's the topographical names. Marsh, tree, hills, all that sort of thing. Names from the landscape. Now, these are my personal faves, actually, because they build a picture of how the place used to look. So, Sherborne, for example, meaning bright river. So, folk names, habitative names, topographical names. The earliest names seem to be those of the river's and there is a justice in that somehow as a fundamental, unchanging element in the landscape. Some river names are so ancient they go back to before even the Celtic language arrived. An example is the River Severn, a name that can be traced back to the Sabrina in the 2nd century, but no further than that, and has yet to be interpreted. It may be that it simply means river, for that is what many of the other river names mean, very often in Celtic. So the Avon, for example, is from a Celtic word for river. OK, so Romans came next. They left very few place names, but as I think every English schoolchild knows, you look for the element of Chester, which gets attached to many Roman towns. The word comes from castrum, Latin for camp, and it was the Anglo-Saxons who arrived and saw these magnificent stone buildings and walls and thought, whoa, let's make sure people remember that. Famously, of course, we like to pronounce these names rubbishly in order to confuse visitors. So, L-E-I-C-E-S-T-E-R. Now, clearly this should be pronounced Leicester. But for those not familiar with the home of Gary Lineker, it's pronounced Leicester, which is an outrage. I cannot drive past Talcester without revelling in its pronunciation as toaster or eat Worcester sauce, even though it should, of course, be Worcestershire sauce. It's childish, obviously, but there we are. There may be two better reasons for all of this, other than having a bit of innocent fun at the expense of the visitors, though no one's quite sure what it is. One might be vowel reduction, like February being reduced to February. The other might be something called haplology. 
Now that is the tendency for people to drop a syllable when it's similar to the syllable next to it. So, why say Worcester when Sess and Stir sound so very much the same and it's tricky to say next to each other? So let's lose one of them. Worcester. That's better. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The vast majority of our place names, though, are Old English as the Anglo-Saxons invaded, and then following them, Old Norse. As you know, of course... The eastern and northern parts of England are heavily influenced by the Danish language, the area we've all talked about together called the Danelaw. The stream of invasions means you often get doubles, compound names that embed exactly the same meaning more than once. So, Breeden, for example, embeds the Celtic Bree and the Old English Don, both meaning hill. After 1066, new place names are relatively rare, as we've said, but they do happen. Fleetwood was a 19th century new town named after an MP. There's a town called Twenty, a product of the railways, about which I think I'm going to tell you some more. So they were building a new railway through the emptiness of the Fenland, recently reclaimed land from the sea, of course, and therefore relatively empty except for hmm, vegetables. Despite the lack of a local town, they thought a railway stop for livestock was a good idea, but what to call it in the middle of nowhere. For some reason they hit on 20, maybe because it was 20 miles to the town of Colesworth, though that's a reasonably rubbish reason for naming a place, a bit like naming somewhere Longway, given its distance to Tipperary. Anyway, Julie, a town, grew up around the railway stop, as it happens, which was also called 20 after the railway stop's name. Then at some point in the future, as the railways contracted, the railway and its stop were removed leaving just the town on its own, and with its name, 20. And most recently, of course, there have been a few new towns. Some of those just expanded small old villages like Harlow and so kept the name, but others were entirely new, like Welling Garden City. The concept of Garden City was an import from the US, as it happens, and the first of the overspill cities to take the growing population of London in the 1920s that had decided they wanted to flee the big smoke. Again, you can find out more in the Reginald Shedcasts about the naming and other suffixes and prefixes and what they mean, and the influence of religion and farming, and indeed how Cambridge acquired its name, even though the bridge originally went over the River Granta, not something called the River Cam. It's a good example of back formation. But for now, let's talk a little bit about the naming with, within urban areas. I was inspired to do this because you so frequently come across the same names in different towns. Something is going on that's obviously common to all urban areas. So it might be a love lane, for example, appears loads of places, or more obvious things like High Street. Unsurprisingly, the names of streets in towns are indeed linked by the same things going on across all of them. There are themes to them. And once again, as you walk around towns, large and small, a flavour of the old life of the town 
reaches back across the centuries. I was in Birmingham, not a million years ago, in their jewellery quarter. Once, 30,000 metal workers laboured there, and their memory lives on in the name. I had occasion to go to Southwark and every so often ate a sandwich just by Pepper Street, where once upon a time spice merchants plied their trade and stored their goods. So, let's look at different types of name you'll come across in English towns. Some of them are literally just descriptive. Hey, why don't we meet at the street that looks like Broadway, for example, is so named simply because, you know, it's broad. High Street is the most obvious and is the fourth most common name in London, but surely the most ubiquitous of them all, unless usurped by Market Street or Main Street or Cheap Street. Cheap from the Old English Cheap for market, of course, as in London's Cheapside. And high is in the sense of big and important, rather than anything to do with altitude, of course. And then at the other end of the scale of importance, you'll get a back lane, or the backs, for the lane running behind the houses on the main market streets. And they were so called because the merchants living and working on the market trade could bring in their goods through the back of their property. Sometimes the description might also be topographical, of course, and I'll bring in a Scottish example of my youth in St Andrews with its North Street and South Street sitting either side of Market Street with the shores forming its equivalent of the backs because it ran along the shore, would you believe? Incredible as it may be, Professor of the Bleeding Obvious as they call me. Upper and Lower Street often serve the same purpose. There are plenty of derogatory names for unimportant streets. Farthing Lane, for example, as in It Ain't Worth a Friday Street is a rather attractive name of a street in Friday and is a reasonably common street name. But actually, despite sounding lovely, it really implies poverty relating to Friday as a fast day because people there couldn't afford to eat very much. Cold Harbour means literally cold shelter. Other names just describe how a street used to look, like Lurk Lane, which has the meaning from the Old English lort or dirt. Greenway Street in Chester was grass-lined once upon a time. Honeypot Lane in London and Honey Street in Hartford had zip to do with bees and everything to do with the muddy and sludgy condition of the places. Just as the Eskimos had loads of names for snow, so the English had loads of names for mud. The second category of names reminds us that towns and villages were once very small and much more integrated with their countryside than they are now. So places like Croft Street, the place where the Croft was, Broomfield Street, Long Acre, are all names that relate to the presence once upon a time of fields. The Calls in Leeds was a lane where cattle were called or driven. Lamb's Conduit Street in Hoburn was to provide fresh water for four women provided charitably by William Lamb in 1577 and it did its job for 200 years. I can also recommend it today as a nice place for a cup of tea, a bun and a bit of innocent hipster spotting. Hyde Park is based on the Hyde, the ancient land unit required to support a family for a year. Places like Strawberry Hill or Saffron Hill give a vision of a city where agriculture and town lived side by side, no burbs in between. Streets might say where they go. Horse Ferry Road, for example, led to you-know-what. Beacon Road in Loughborough led to our historic hilltop beacon in the Charnwood Forest, beloved of David Attenborough in his youth. 
the way to the church. Church Lane is the single most common street name of all, and Chapel Street is almost as ubiquitous. And there are other religious names, such as in Westminster, Broad Sanctuary and Little Sanctuary, refer to Westminster Abbey's famous and extended sanctuary. Guilds and trades, of course, dominated towns and gave them their raison d'etre, so you will find occupational names, both above board and quite well below board, actually. Bar is a name for a gatehouse or wall that stops you going into a city. York has four of them, and one of them is Bootham Bar, of course, and Bootham comes from an old Norse name meaning literally at the booths, at the market, essentially. There are trades names, Cock Lane and Poultry in London, Goss Street in Chester for geese. More opaque are places like the glorious Shambles of York. Very, very beautiful, which I believe I may accurately associate with the word shishi. But once a chaos of old rotting flesh, blood and bones from the butchers of the city. The word shambles comes from the old English word shkiamol, which means an upturned bench set up for the sale of fresh meat. You can find shambles in Chesterfield, Worcester and Chippenham, as well as in York. Many occupations were connected with different nationalities. So in the 14th century, for example, England made great efforts to import cloth-making expertise from Flanders. And trade was driven by international merchants as well as English. So this international flavour remains embedded in street names. Fleming Gate in Beverley reflects those Flemish merchants. French Gate in Richmond. Lombard Street in London for the Italian merchants. You'll find more relaxing occupations around in names such as Bowling Alley Walk in Dorchester or Butt Garden Street and the Butts in several towns where everyone would go to practice the national sport of archery. And finally, of course, let us now go below board and salaciously revel in the names that reflected less publicly approved pastimes represented by Love Lane, Maiden Lane, Finkel Street, Gropecunt Lane and so on. Street names will often pick up major building types within the town, so Turl Street in Oxford remembers some sort of turnstile. Bailey Road, Tower Hill, Citadel Way, all these and many other names are those that remember less gentle times. Or famous or notorious owners of buildings. So there is a Loughborough Road in Lambeth, South London, I found. I was so impressed. Have Londoners finally recognised Loughborough's importance and named a road that will run all the way from London to Loughborough, irrespective of all the other places it'll go through, and be lined with celebratory bunting. Sadly not. It is in fact the place where once stood the London House of Lord Loughborough in 1643. Shame, but hey, one day. London's Piccadilly is also named after Piccadilly Hall, since its owner, one Robert Baker, was a tailor who'd made it a fortune through the success of the Piccalils, a fashionable wide collar in the 17th century. And the guess is that Manchester's Piccadilly is also named after the same lacy collar, but I think that's a guess. Downing Street was built on land owned by Sir George Downing. Then there are activities from the famous Clink Street in London to the absurdly descriptive Whitmer Watmergate in York, York's smallest street and the place where the pillory stood. Or national events, Coronation Street, for example. How could I not mention Corrie? Just on occasion, then, you also get an edge of irony. Mount Pleasant is an example, often used for an area that was, at the time, a notorious dump, such as 
Mount Pleasant in Clerkenwell, London. Not sure if the area in Liverpool has the same antecedent, but maybe it does. Finally, to thematic names. These usually derive from a later period when the streets are being laid out as part of coherent developments as towns grew from the 18th century onward. And so the poor developers sit down and thinks, what on earth am I going to call all these streets we're building? Poets, saints, American states, prime ministers, rivers, Greek philosophers, all of these and more have been tried. Well then, that's my abbreviated version of the three place name episodes available for members. Just to finish with a couple of extra comments... To repeat, one of the reasons I love place names is that they give you an insight into the history of a place. So, for another example, I commuted for nine years all the way to old London town, Hoban, to be more precise, one hour 45 minutes each way, or longer, because often I used to walk from Marylebone, St Mary's Stream, to Hoban, Stream in a Hollow, and would cross on the way Portland Place. Now, Portland Place It's a very unusually wide street, which runs from the rather lovely All Souls Church and the rather pompous Langham Hotel all the way up to Regent's Park. And I wondered why it was so wide. Well, it turns out that it's one of those streets named for the landowner, the Duke of Portland, and it was laid out by the Adams brothers in the late 18th century. Now, originally, at the southern end was the large house and gardens of one Lord Foley, a tenant of the Duke of Portland, and for some reason it was felt that Lord Foley's agreement to the development was required. Lord Foley did agree, but he insisted that whatever they do, his view of Regent's Park must be unimpeded. And so there we are. We are left with a rather pleasant, wide, open boulevard with an open vista before you plunge back into the tightly woven city streets, all down to Lord Foley. Another final reason, though, of course, is that English place names can be wildly and childishly funny. This is, frankly, the dead donkey bit. Now, my friend Frank sent me a map of funny British place names, most of them very rude, Frank. Lickenbottom was one of the gentler ones. But, of course, for all of them, there is a perfectly reasonable explanation somewhere. So Farley Wallop, actually, has nothing to do with someone called Farley being walloped or walloping. Farley means clearing with ferns, and the Wallop family came to own the manor. Great snoring and little snoring have nothing to do with nocturnal breathing problems, just the more and less important villages that once belonged to a man called Schneer. Even Fry-Up in Yorkshire has nothing to do with lard whatsoever, but probably means the valley devoted to the Norse goddess Frigga. Now that's the end of my advertorial. Why become a member, in summary, for access to a library of over 100 hours of Shedcasts, for fresh Shedcasts every month, for ad-free access to the free History of England you are listening to now, along with the guest episodes, by the way, and because so that you can support me, so that I can write the complete history of England and keep body and soul together at the same time. To find out more, go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and look for Become a Member. That's thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Thank you for listening. Thank you for putting up with all the adverts and see you hopefully on the other side in the land of members. Next week is back to the civil wars. And until then, good luck everyone and have a great week.
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify in store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail 23. Shopify.com slash retail 23.